0: that's the truth we want to look at with special focus this morning. Christ was born to save. Let's read, first of all, John 3, 14 through 18, and then Numbers 21, a corresponding passage in the Old Testament. John 3 and then Numbers 21, page 1055, John 3, Jesus speaking to Nicodemus, a teacher in Israel who really hasn't even got to first base in spiritual things, he needs to be born again. And he's shocked by that. What? I need to be born again. John three fourteen through 18. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And then let's turn to Numbers 21, page 152. We'll begin reading at verse 1. Our text is 4 through 9, the bronze serpent. Numbers 21, verse 1, when the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, that's the southern wilderness of Judea, when he heard that Israel was coming by the way of Atharim, he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. And Israel vowed a vow to the Lord and said, if you will indeed give this people into my hand, then I will devote their cities to destruction. And the Lord heeded the voice of Israel and gave over the Canaanites and they devoted them and their cities to destruction. So the name of the place was called Hormah, which means destruction. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. The manna is what they're talking about. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died is good news. May the Lord bless us by it. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, why did Jesus come into the world? Well, when Mary became pregnant, the angel Gabriel came to visit Joseph and said, You need to give that baby a name, Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus came to save his people from their sins. That's why God sent his son. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish. Not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus is good news for the dying, the perishing. So you have that message for Christmas. And that's really the message of the whole gospel for all Christian life and worship. And we wanna say, so where's the urgency? Are we desperate today as we gather to worship Jesus? Are we clinging to him for dear life? Are we just sitting here comfortable and unconcerned and tired and maybe even dull and a little bored of all this business? Are we desperate? We worship worshiping as desperate sinners, trusting a wonderful savior. Isn't Christ compelling? Isn't this urgent business to gather to worship Jesus, to celebrate his coming? Aren't we just at the edge of our seat to see the Savior today that we might live? That's really the question. Are you indifferent or intense? Am I chill or am I captivated? Is my heart bored or am I burning? Where where, are we at? And I ask this congregation because the gospel sometimes can become downright old news for us ho-hum and we just show up to look good but we're not looking upon Christ with desperation longing and deep deep joy at who he is for us so we want to see this morning Jesus' good news for the perishing the dying look to him and live Three things here. When we were perishing, secondly, God gave us his son that we might look and live when we were perishing. There's two frightening stories that we read this morning. The one is people who knew they were dying, Genesis or Numbers 21, Israel and the serpents. And the other in John 3 to a guy who didn't know he was dying, Nicodemus and the serpent. Israel and the serpents, Nicodemus and the serpent. The one in Numbers 21 really shouldn't shock us, but it's very disturbing and disappointing. The book of Numbers is exactly that, counting people. The first counting of the old generation, the beginning of Numbers. That generation that came out of Egypt, what a bunch of grumblers and complainers. And they put God on trial, remember, at Rephidim? the Lord among us or not. unbelievers who just didn't trust God to take them to the land of Canaan, so they they turned their back on him. So God, remember, was angry with that generation and said, you've got to wander here in the wilderness until this whole generation dies, and then I'll bring the young uns in, the new generation. And, And so Numbers 20 is the death of Aaron at Mount Hor. That signals the end of that generation of grumblers and complainers. Now the new generation, God's going to move forward with them and go into the promised land. Hallelujah. This is the Reformation generation here in Numbers 21. Moving on from Mount Hor. This is the faith generation. They've been 38 years in the wilderness. Finally, they're on their way to the promised land. They're excited. They're confident. The first four verses, the the Canaanite king of Arad tries to stop them, but they, in faith, they make a promise to the Lord. If you give us this people, we will destroy them. The reason they would destroy them is not because Israel was so good. You read that in Deuteronomy, but because the people were so wicked. So God was going to shove them out, destroy them, and give Israel their land. And God gave them victory through faith. And so we're off to such a good start. New things are happening in Israel. Then there's a bump in the road, a rather large one. Edom won't let them go through. So they have to take about a six-month detour south around Edom, way below the Dead Sea. I don't know how well I would handle that. And verse 4 says, they became impatient on the way. Oh no, they lashed out, verse 5, against God and against Moses. And then they used the same words as the words the older generation had used at Rephidim when the Lord came and stood on the rock. Why did you take us out of Egypt here into the wilderness to die? In other words, we're going to pull the plug on the exodus And we're going to go back to Egypt. We're going to undo salvation. We're done with you, God and Moses. We want to reverse our redemption. Besides, there's no food and water here. And then they go on to say, we loathe this worthless food. In other words, there's plenty of food. We just hate it. We're sick and tired of it. We're sick and tired of you, God, and your gifts. This is awful. It's the new generation. I am so disappointed. Think about how disappointed God must have felt and how angry these guys have seen it all. Israel's stubbornness and hard-heartedness, God's goodness, punishing them, but also forgiving them, feeding them, leading them, guarding them. And this is supposed to be a new start, a renewed people trained by the lessons of 38 years in the wilderness. Here we go again. Congregation, you know what this teaches us about us? First, no new generation is better than the previous one. Do you think we can remember that? No new generation is better than the previous one. We have additional gifts, perhaps, and blessings to enjoy and use, privileges. But no new generation is better than the previous one. Our hearts go astray, and we always, always need repentance, and we always, always need the gospel, no matter what generation we are. We always need the Christ. Jesus is always urgent. We're desperate. Do you feel that? Do you know that? Do you see that? Do I see that about myself? We must never put our confidence in ourselves or in our generation. Always put our hope in Jesus who came to save us from our sins. That's why the book of Hebrews says in the new covenant, it keeps taking us back to that generation. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts like the generation in the wilderness who saw my works for 40 years and put me to the test and provoked me, says God. Take care, brothers. This is the new covenant now, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. This is for us. Instruction for us upon whom the end of the ages has come. And that's why I always need to handle Jesus as an urgent matter for me right now And when I come to worship him, come as a perishing sinner to a saving Christ. A perishing sinner to a saving Christ. Is that how I came, how you came this morning? And the reason why there there is so much laziness, weakness in the body of Christ today, and apathy is that we don't have that sense I'm okay, I'm fine. I'm not perfect, but I'm all right. And I'm not, I'm not. About 25 years ago, we started as a congregation, right? A new generation, a new start. Boy, this is gonna be good. Boy, we're going to be do so much better than the others. Well, praise the Lord for new starts. That's his gift, but we still have hearts that go astray, don't we? We need Jesus as urgently as anybody ever did. So God disciplined this new generation severely to show them how desperate their situation was. They needed this instruction. This is love. He sent fiery serpents and they bit the people so that many died. Now fiery might mean they were copper colored. More likely I would say it means they were venomous snakes. They bit people and this red swelling would form on their bodies and then this red hot fever would overtake them and deadly snake bites they don't kill you instantly but they bring about a slow and painful death it's god's curse on his rebellious people the curse of suffering and death a curse on their sin the curse that we all deserve because of how defiant we can be toward our god and how much we can spurn his gifts I'm sick of this worthless. I'm sick of worship. I'm sick of this Christian life stuff. Whoa. Really? Oh man, I need a Savior. Maybe just in our hearts, of course. But maybe also outwardly, we can be impatient with God, tired of this wearisome journey, tired of the culture we live in, tired of the cancer, the floods, the earthquakes, the wars, the marital pain and strife, tired of getting hurt, tired of persecution, tired of the detours that God arranges for me when he could bring me to the promised land just so fast. Oh, I got a six-month detour for another one. He could make my life so much easier, couldn't he? But you know, the Lord is loving, and He's a plan for our lives to sanctify us through suffering, test us, remind us of how much our hearts are in desperate condition and need the Lord. And maybe I look at somebody else. You're the problem in my life. You need to change. I'm relatively sin-free and decent. Not perfect, but fine, fine. But am I? Are we? Do we see that we too will perish in our own sin if we do not get help soon and if we do not have help constantly? We were perishing. Secondly, God sent a savior. With the help, yes, the help of the fiery serpents. The people could see now more clearly just what lived in their hearts, how desperate their situation was before God. They had, there was nothing they could do to save themselves. They needed to rush to God for help or die. And you know what they did? They rushed to God for help. Praise the Lord. They repented of their unbelief. They saw it suddenly, clearly by the Spirit's power. Oh, we're doing the same thing our fathers did. We're no better than our fathers. They repented of their unbelief toward Moses and God because Moses was the mediator, representative appointed from God and for God. They repented of their unbelief toward Moses and God, and now they turned to them instead. The people came to Moses, verse 7, and said, We've sinned, for we've spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. Why did they do this? Why did they come to the mediator to go to God? Why did they ask for prayer to the Lord? You know why? They knew something about him. He's a forgiving God who relents of the disaster that he will bring in us if we repent and turn to him for our salvation never fails. It's that track record they depended on of his steadfast love and faithfulness for all who call on him. He's the God who provides a way of escape for the perishing. That, that's who he is. That's what he does. That's why he sent his Son. And if we say, Lord, I have sinned grievously against you, I have fought against you, I've turned a deaf ear toward you because I was so in love with myself and my own feelings and my own sins, and I was so convinced of my own holiness, so I've shut you out of my life, I haven't really known my need for you, I've sinned against you, if we come, he'll hear us. He's the God who never turns away from the one who comes to him for safety, never, ever, Listen, we read from Psalm 86 at the beginning of the service. Here's what it says just before the call to worship that I read. Psalm 86, 5 through 8. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, turn to my prayer, listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. There's none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. When he says there's none like you among the gods, it means he hears and he answers the prayers of the needy who call upon him, and he rescues and he saves them. There's no other God like that. Well that's exactly what happened here Moses their mediator prayed for the people God put put Moses there to do exactly that You can be sure that if God gives you a mediator congregation he will listen to that mediator Today our mediator is the greater than Moses Jesus right whom God put in his presence to intercede for us You can be sure that God will listen to you when you come to him through Jesus That's his wonderful promise in scripture. He says to the uttermost those who come to God through Jesus. So the Lord said to Moses, verse 8, he answers their prayer. Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole and everyone who's bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and he set it on a pole. And this is utterly staggering. What other God would come up with such a a dumb thing like this. Hideous. Moses, I want you to make a serpent out of bronze, impale it onto a pole, lift it up where everyone can see it. In other words, take the curse, the snake, impale it, and whoever is under the curse, who's ever perishing, can just... Look at that serpent on a pole and live. Oh, he's, whatever people might think of this, so gracious, so loving, and he makes the cure so readily available to a people so bad and so undeserving. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. He provided a way of escape, a way of salvation for all who repented of their sin, called on him for mercy. But again, what kind of escape is this? The gospel is so ugly and, and so disgusting to the world. You hang up one of those detestable, horrible venomous serpents on a pole and look at, at it as your source of life in healing. Despicable. How can God even think up stuff like this? But brothers and sisters before, as many Jews and Gentiles have rejected this God and his way of salvation because they find it so humiliating and disgusting. Like Naaman, I'm not bathing in the dirty Jordan River. Yeah, I'm not stooping that low. But before we protest, think about how reasonable and how much sense, how wise God's way of salvation is. It's perfectly wise. It means this, number one, we have the problem, God gives the answer. There's no help here below. God sends it from above. If you're perishing in your sin, you cannot save yourself. But God can. That's the first thing. But the second is, God's answer is, I'll take the curse off you and crush it on a pole. So you can live. I'll crush the curse and give you life. Doesn't that make sense? In order for me to be saved... The curse that's crushing me has to be cursed. That's it. It's as simple as that. And then God asks basically, do you trust me to do this? Are you willing to trust my way of salvation? Will you look at this cursed serpent on a pole and trust me to remove the curse from you and give you life? It's not that the bronze serpent was a magic healing device, that as they looked at it, power radiated from that bronze serpent and zap them. No, no, no. The power of healing didn't lie in that thing. Later on, the Israelites, you know, actually set this thing up as an object of worship. They called that Nehushtan, meaning snake. We read that in 2 Kings 18 and they, and they bring sacrifices to it. And Hezekiah takes that thing and he breaks it into a million pieces, throws that idol away, it's got no power. The power is not in the serpent, but in the promise of God to remove the curse from you by putting it on someone else. Do you trust God to do that for you? To remove the curse from you by putting it on someone else, impaling somebody else for you. Do you believe that gospel? Will you trust me in this? And they did. You can can see the kids as mommy and daddy are, are screaming out in pain and writhing in agony. Moses put up a pole with a serpent on it. And if you look at it, look that way. The pain will go away. The swelling will subside and you'll live. The poison will come out of you. The curse will be lifted. And that's the Christmas gift, not just for Israel, but that the whole world needs the gift of someone who will take God's curse from me and put it on himself, become impaled on a pole for perishing sinners. That's Jesus, He, he said that to Nicodemus, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, don't misunderstand this like some false teachers have. Jesus became a serpent on the cross. He was the devil himself, the devil incarnate. That's ridiculous. That's nonsense. Jesus is making a comparison here, not an identification. As Moses lifted up the serpent of the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. The point of comparison is the curse. Jesus says in Galatians 3.13, or God says through the apostle, Jesus became a curse for us as it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs from a tree. He became a curse for us to remove the curse from us so we could live. That's God's gift of love. He came to earth in our nature in the likeness of sinful flesh. Standing in our curse, taking our place in it, was impaled for us on a pole, dying for sinners, dying under the, God's wrath and punishment that we deserve. And everyone who looks to Jesus in faith will live. Look, look to Jesus. There's a life in a look at the crucified one. That's what we see thirdly. Good news for the dying. When we were perishing, God gave us a son that we might look and live. Why did God send his son that we who are dying could look and live? Look and live. Look at the one hanging from a pole for you the one God appointed, and you will live. It's the way it was in the wilderness. That's the way it is today. We are perishing in our sin, but God lifted up his son on a pole and put him to death for us that we might look to him and live. And that's the other shocking thing in this passage is not Israel in the wilderness, but Nicodemus and the serpent. He's a religious teacher, he's a Pharisee, a good man, a holy man. First Jesus says to him, you need to be born again, you need a new life. Then he takes this teacher who knows his Bible very well in some ways, he takes him back to the wilderness, Nicodemus, to a trip in the wilderness, to the fiery serpents, to the poison dying people who need to look at a snake on a pole and live. And he says, yep, that's where you're at, Nicodemus. You're perishing. You are a dead man because of your sin, your wickedness. But God has sent me to put me on a pole so you can look at me and live. Look, dying Nicodemus. Look and live. Shocking for Nicodemus. I mean, not really, but to his own sensibilities, shocking. And he says that to us today, we may feel fine. I'm doing okay, there's nothing really urgent. I just need a little shot in the arm. Once in a while, Jesus says, what? You're not okay, you're perishing. You need to be born again. You need to flee from yourself. Look at Christ in faith and live. And even if you've been a Christian for 40 years, like that new generation, the poison of sin still gets in. And there's never a day when we don't need to look to Jesus for forgiveness and strength for sufficient grace to help us in our weakness. Hebrews 4 says, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses or with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. That's it, brothers and sisters. We are urgently, in 2023, this generation, this group of people, in need of Jesus dying on the cross for me, nailed to a tree for me, becoming a curse for me so that I might look to him in faith. He made my sin and my rebellion his very own. He made my curse and death his very own. He made my agony and punishment. His agonizing death. His very own So I can live, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Spurgeon said it was the image of a dead snake. He says, wonder of wonders that our Lord Jesus should condescend to be symbolized by a dead serpent. The instruction to us after reading John's gospel is this, our Lord Jesus Christ in definite humiliation desired to come into this world to be made a curse for us. Again, it's no wonder people hate the gospel. It's so ugly. In Paul's day, people turned their eyes away from the message of the cross as degrading, foolish, humiliating, really a stench. Looking on a dead snake to live. (laughs) No way. Looking at a curse on a pole to live, at a crucified Jesus. There's only weakness in that. I will do no such thing. Many say that. What about you? Are you too smart, too good, too polite, too religious, too self sufficient to run, to look, to hide in Jesus? There's life in a look at the crucified one. It was a snowy cold winter day in January 1850 in England. Young man was struggling through snow on that Sunday morning to make it to church. And because it was too snowy to carry on he just turned into a little primitive Methodist chapel as the service was about to begin. Wasn't intending to go there but he did. The young man was confused, he was miserable because he had no peace with God. Now the minister didn't show that morning because he was snowed in. So finally a man came forward from the pew, skinny guy, looked a little bit like a shoemaker or a tailor. He went into the pulpit to preach and after stumbling awkwardly through his meshes for about 10 minutes, he had run out of things to say. And then he looked straight at the young man and he said, young man, you look very miserable. And the young man did, but he wasn't used to being addressed that way from the pulpit. And the substitute preacher said, you will always be miserable in life and in death if you don't obey my text. But if you obey it now, you'll be saved. Young man, he was shouting now, look to Jesus Christ. You have nothing else to do but just look, look, look and live. And on that day, that young man, Charles Spurgeon, did that very thing. He looked to Christ for life. He received life. He was saved. And he spent the rest of his life lifting up Jesus and saying, look, look. And it's true. This message for Spurgeon is true for the whole world and for us God's Christ is sufficient for all our complaints and rebellions and his just condemnation and all the poison coursing through your veins promises life for you through faith. Jesus came for you. He's crucified for sinners so that everyone who looks to him will not perish but have eternal life. And he's lifted up high enough for the whole world to see him. And he's calling us also to say to our neighbors, look, will you commit yourself just one time through this Christmas season to direct a loved one, a relative, a neighbor to look to Jesus and live just one, one conversation. May God use us this way to send out that glorious gospel, which is good news for the dying. Amen.